Welcome to The Nature Connection, the podcast featuring Dr. Les Higgins, who's an enthusiastic bushwalker who studied the psychology of nature connectedness and written extensively about it. I'm Wendy Moore, an artist who finds great inspiration and sanity from wandering in the bush. Both of us are passionate about connecting with nature and we hope that our chats will encourage and empower you to deepen your own relationship with nature. Les, as a mum and more recently as a a doting grandmother, um, I see that children sort of have this almost seemingly inbuilt fascination or curiosity about the natural world. They, um, you know, they take great delight in being outdoors and, and engaging with nature. Is this because that that need to connect with nature is something that we're born with? Is it something innate? Yes, almost certainly. Um, the need appears to be present in people everywhere, you know, regardless of background. And this is hardly surprising when you think about it. For 97% of the time we humans have walked the planet, home has been in woodlands and forests and other natural environments. Just imagine the strife our nature-dwelling ancestors would have been in if they had felt no need for nature, no need to be engaged with the natural world. Learning how to survive Mm. in that world would have been very difficult, if not impossible. But um, Mm. evolution had endowed them with a need to be connected to nature along with a disposition to make that connection. And and that's the disposition that's called biophilia, isn't it? Uh, That's correct. Now, broadly speaking, biophilia disposes us or inclines us to reach out to nature. Now, it doesn't compel us to do this. It's it's not a hard-wired instinct. It's, It's more a soft, think of a soft, wired program that prompts us to connect with the natural world. If we do... We are rewarded in all sorts of ways, and our biophilia gets stronger. But if we don't, mm-hmm. biophilia won't fully develop. That is a major mm-hmm. reason why biophilia, this inclination to engage with nature, is stronger in some people than in others. But here's an important point. Biophilia always remains part of who we are. Deep down we are, if you'll forgive a little bit of jargon, biophilic beings. So is that biophilia something that deepens our connection with nature or is it the other way around? Let me begin my answer with an illustration. Recently my wife and I visited a, a small patch of bushland right on the border of our local government area. It was a weekday, but even so we were accompanied by Dozens of people, all with one purpose, to look at a display of waratahs. We were all there to get a dose of natural beauty, and we weren't disappointed. The display was stunning, bordering on awesome. Now, that's how biophilia works. Mm-hmm. It prompts us to reach out to nature and rewards us when do. Now, the rewards can vary, but they're all good for us in one way or another. So the answer to your question, I guess, is this. It's uh, uh, the relationship is two-way. Biophilia prompts us to connect with nature and the rewards that flow from doing so strengthen our biophilia. 
makes sense, yeah. So obviously our our ancestors lived very, very different lives to us. Um, they, you know, they had a very hunter-gatherer type existence. It, it almost sounds like you're saying that, that we are as much creatures of nature as they were and that I suppose that we still have that inner hunter-gatherer, would you say? I would. And this is true because uh, our genes were their genes. We are all from the same genetic mould, peas from the same pod. Mm-hmm. Now, for that reason... Our bodies, including our brains, are no different from theirs. Basically, they were were as capable of doing everything that we can do, even though they lived much less sophisticated lives as hunter-gatherers in the material sense. They were no less observers, learners, thinkers, problem solvers, inventors and creators than we are. Mm. Uh, the fact that they were hunter-gatherers in no may, way means that they were lesser or inferior forms of humanity or that their cultures lack richness and sophistication. We may appear to be smarter and to have accomplished a great deal more, but that's because of the tools, the advanced knowledge and the technology in our culture that we now have at our disposal. Now, these t- tools have extended the range of the power and impact of human capabilities, but they have not yet modified the anatomy and functioning of our brains. These are still the brains mm-hmm. of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. The knowledge, mm-hmm. technology and cultural tools available to us may have amplified the power and reach of our brains, made us hunter-gatherers on steroids, you might say, but they have not changed the essence of our common humanity. I think that's so important to acknowledge when you were talking about, um, you know, that many of the skills, the problem-solving skills, the observational skills, all that sort of thing, I think often um, I wonder whether, in fact, those skills were better. I mean, have we lost our capacity to observe when we're out in the bush? I suspect that our hunter-gatherer ancestors were probably noticing and aware of different things that we completely miss now because we're just not doing that there and and doing it enough. Um, I've been reading about First Nations people um, talking about that that connection to country that they have and they the thing I notice is that they mention that sense that there's really no separation between themselves and country, that they, you know, the atoms that are in country and the atoms that are in them uh, are similar. And I keep thinking of that um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song where they talk about, you know, we are stardust, we are billion-year-old carbon. And and I think it's sort of almost saying the same thing. Um, But don't worry, I won't sing it. Um, But in all of this, there's this recurring theme, I guess, of interconnectedness, that that the relationship, in the relationship between us and nature, that the well-being of one depends on the well-being of the other. And, and I suspect that you would believe that we have a lot to learn from um, First Nations people about how we react with nature, connect with nature. Is that the case, Les? Oh, absolutely. Um, they can teach us. 
how to love and respect the natural world and how to use and preserve it at the same time. And uh, I believe they also show what it means to really to live in unity and kinship with nature. You mentioned mm-hmm. Australians, Australia's First Nation people. Well, they're a living illustration of what it means to live seamlessly with the natural world. They've, as you said, they mm-hmm. feel a profound connection with nature or country. And this kinship is fundamental to their identity and entire way of life. For them, all living things are interdependent so that there can be no separation of person and country, no separation of culture and nature. You know, an important aspect of connecting with nature is tapping into this, what I call earth-centered wisdom, and also of respecting its source. Mm. At the very least, we should understand or seek to understand indigenous people and cultures in their terms and not from a first world standpoint. You know, the difference between mm. Indigenous and other people has nothing to do with evolution or levels of development. Every culture has been and always will be shaped by the, the circumstances of their place and time. Mm. Mm. Yes, I think it's something that we just, uh, we will explore more and more. I think it's, it's so important to the health of us and also the health of our environment. For many of us, though, you know, we we live in urban environments, and and when we do get into nature, it's it's often in the forms of you know little forays into nature where we go out to sort of deepen our our connection. Um, and you and I both do that, Les. So I I just wondered why is it important to you? to sort of remind yourself that you are a creature of the natural world? Well, simply it's an important part of who I am, part of how I see myself and how the world sees me. If I were ever to lose sight of my oneness with creation, I'd be closing my mind Mm -hmm. on an important part of myself and uh, on the reality Mm -hmm. of my complete interconnectedness with every other living thing. And uh, I'd also be mm. risking damage to my happiness and well-being and health. You know, I could well find myself neglecting my need for contact with plants and animals or with natural beauty and with awe and wonder and with places that kind of calm and restore me. So it's, it's only by meeting, you know, that need of nature that I have that I can truly hope to flourish as a human being and to be fully true to myself. Mm. And for me too, there's that element of being in nature gives me a sense of perspective of sort of how I fit in the grand scheme of things, that it's it's not kind of all about me, you know, that I'm really, I'm a bit like one leaf of many on a tree. And um, so just having that, that sense of perspective can sometimes help me put things in proportion, you know, things that I'm worried about or anxious about. Um, I think, yeah, just reminding myself of that part in the natural world can really help with that. So in terms of what are we going to do this week, um, I'm I'm thinking about just, just to report back on my colour mixing, that was a really good way of making me notice colours in the bush and um, I've had a lot of fun with pink gum leaves this week. But, but for next week, um, 
I'm not I'm not at all a woo-woo kind of person, but something that really appealed to me in what I read was acknowledging country or acknowledging the place that you're in, in in your own way. And so for me, this week when I go on my walks, I'm going to just make sure that I I sit or if not sit, just pause long enough to acknowledge my interconnectedness with where I am and that that sort of sense of oneness with the natural world. What about you, Liz? Well, Wendy, I'm going, going to do something a little differently. I'm going to engage with nature right here in my uh, cubbyhole here. I have been alerted to some podcasts available through the ABC Listen app, and mm-hmm. these are called Nature Track is the title of the podcast series, and um, they comprise episodes lasting up to an hour or more in some cases, covering such things as down at the creek, midnight frog noises uh, or choruses, I think it's called, lyrebirds in the forest. And, mm. and what you're being given are just simply the sounds uh, from those various um, sources. And uh, it's an invitation just to sit and immerse yourself in the sounds, play them as background perhaps as you're doing other things. Well, I'm going to have a, uh, I'm going to really explore those and I'll take advantage of some, uh, the notes that Ann Jones has prepared to accompany these various episodes so that I, I'm going to be helped to understand a little more about the experience I'm having. So I'm quite looking forward to that. Well, that sounds good, and it doesn't matter if it's pouring with rain. Actually, they've got one that is just uh, which is just all about pouring rain. <laughs> <laughs> so you can have you listen to it even if it's not pouring with rain. Oh, that sounds great, Liz. I look forward to hearing how that went and talking next week. We'll see yep. you then. Bye now. Thanks for listening. We hope you found our conversation encouraging, motivating, and helpful. You can read more about nature connectedness in Les's blog, Our Green Genes. That's www.ourgreengenes.wordpress and genes is spelled G-E-N-E-S. Or in his book, Connect with Nature, one of the best things you can do for yourself, others and planet Earth. And this is available online at www.connectwithnatureguide.com and at www.inspiringbookshop.com and through all book retailers. To learn about me and my art, visit www.afterthemonsoon.com.